Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 87. As we are working our way through the book of Psalms, we come this morning to Psalm 87. Hear God's word. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Psalm 87 is about the greatness of Zion, otherwise known as Jerusalem, the city of God. Great things have happened there under God's blessing. And in a surprising twist, the psalmist writes of foreigners being born there. And the psalm ends with an expression of praise to God, acknowledging him as the source, the fountain of all good things experienced by God's people. How are we in the New Testament to relate to this psalm? It seems like it would be irrelevant to us who have no connections to the city of Jerusalem. And what I want to take time to point out is that this psalm is applicable to us, and this is because Zion, representing Jerusalem and the Old Testament people of God, ultimately Zion is one with us in Christ. In the church, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, since we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. The things that excite the psalmist or psalmists, it says there in the, in the pre-title, a psalm of the sons of Korah. The things that excite the writers of this psalm are spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings that for us are the same in their essence. Yes, the outward form has changed. The church is now broader than the Jews. And Jerusalem, Zion, is no longer the special place it once was now that Christ has come. But the inward spiritual realities have not changed. The people of God, we still long with hope for a day when God will dwell with us and, and, and we with him in perfect fellowship. We long for a day when his reign will extend to all the nations of the world. For us, Zion represents heaven and the church. And so we read and even sing this psalm. Uh, John Newton wrote the well-known hymn that we're going to sing here in, in, in a few moments after this sermon. The hymn that starts out, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. And what is being highlighted is Zion as the place where God dwelt with and protected his people. And what Newton does is to include us, New Testament believers, members of the church, as members and children of Zion, which means that we can claim the fellowship and protection that characterized Old Testament Zion. We can claim these things as our own. Is Newton correct in connecting Zion, Jerusalem, Israel, the kingdom of God, and ultimately all of the Old Testament promises to us as members of the church? Well, the short answer is yes, but let me explain. 
We are in an election year, and there's always a temptation, right, to think that if we just get the right leader, that we will enjoy the kingdom of peace and prosperity that God promised his people long ago. I think the greater question at hand is, what is the kingdom of God? And secondarily, how is it built? How is it increased? These are significant questions because Scripture holds out the promise of a future day when God's people will belong to a worldwide kingdom. But what exactly does that mean? Abram was promised that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. God promised that Abram and his descendants would possess a land forever. And he also promised that he would make of Abram a nation of great number. Later, the promise was given to King David of a son who would reign over Israel forever. There are several promises given in the Old Testament of Israel having victory and domination over all the nations on earth. For example, Isaiah 60, verses 3 and following, it says, And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising and skipping to uh, the, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Foreigners shall Build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. Your gates shall be open continually, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. How are we to understand these promises? What does their fulfillment look like? There are those who see these promises as pertaining only to the nation of Israel, only to the Jews, and see their fulfillment as entirely earthly in nature. In other words, the kingdom of God is equated with the political kingdom of the Jews. And so the promise of land, we are told, pertained only to Palestine. The promise of a king reigning on David's throne is the promise of Jesus reigning forever in Jerusalem. And because Israel has never had worldwide dominion, and Christ has not reigned on David's throne in Jerusalem, they say the fulfillment of these promises remains in the future. They're told the day is coming when Christ will appear and he will bring in, to, in subjection um, the world in subjection to the Jews in a thousand-year reign of Christ from the throne in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, God has a separate plan, we are told, for the church and for Gentiles. I'd argue that this perspective is very easy to disprove from Scripture. If God was promising the Jews that they would possess the land of Palestine forever, and the promise to David was of Jesus reigning in Jerusalem forever, then the possession of the land by the Jews and Jesus' reign in Jerusalem could not be for only a thousand years. It would have to be forever. Not just a long time, but forever. But what about the passages that teach that this earth will one day be destroyed to make way for the new heavens and new earth? And so these promises initially made to the Jews can't find their ultimate fulfillment in an earthly Jewish kingdom, not even in a thousand-year reign of the Messiah from Jerusalem, for these promises are eternal. They, regard, they are concerning eternal blessings. So that's one view. And then there are those who view the kingdom of God as an earthly kingdom, but made up of spiritual people. The kingdom of God is said to be found anytime Christians are 
in charge and exerting political and social power over cities and nations. And they believe that Christians are going to exert more and more moral control over the unbelieving wicked world by taking control of the world's institutions, especially uh, government and and, uh, education. And we are told that when Jesus returns, it will be after there has been a golden age of worldwide domination by Christians for a thousand years. Now, commendably, this view does at least relate the church to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom in this view is not a Jewish kingdom, but a kingdom run by Christians of all races. But this view, like the first, can be disproved by Scripture. For one thing, there are multiple instances in which Scripture teaches great tribulation prior to the Lord's return. But more importantly, Scripture is clear that God's kingdom is not of this world. That's exactly what Christ said. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a kingdom built by political power and earthly weapons. The kingdom of God is not built by means of dominating unbelieving people and bringing them into subjection by military and other coercive means. The weapons of our warfare, Scripture says, are not carnal but spiritual. God's kingdom is not built by outnumbering believers, unbelievers, Uh, It's not built by outnumbering them and and forcing our will on them through laws and through the threat of civil punishment. Nowhere is our hope as believers held out to be an earthly kingdom where there is still sin. My longing is not for Christians reigning a thousand years, but whose reign still involves having to hold unbelievers in check in a thousand years where Though the curse will be pushed back, we are told, in substantial ways, there still remains something of the curse and of our battle with sin. But worst of all, Christ will not be there. My hope and the hope that is held out to us throughout Scripture is not the hope of an earthly kingdom that itself will pass away after a thousand years, but of Christ's return and of an eternal reign over his church in the new heavens and new earth. And so it is that our longing should be that Christ will return quickly. So this leaves us then to understand the kingdom of God to be intimately connected to the church. That's the position of our confession, which says the church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church is also a body and a bride, but it is also at its core a group of people ruled by King Jesus. And yes, Christ's rule extends beyond the church to the entire universe, but even that universal rule of Christ is with the church in mind. And in the end, the highest manifestation of Christ's kingship will take place when Christ reveals himself to all to be the savior and bridegroom of the church, while all those who opposed him and his rule will be stopped and they will be punished. So then how is Christ's rule extended? How does the church expand? How does it grow? How are sinners conquered? It's through the gospel as sinners are brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ and become a part of the church. And so what the Bible clearly teaches is that the promises to Israel of land and of an eternal kingdom and a conquering of the nations, those things were only typically fulfilled in Israel. The reality of these promises come to fulfillment in the church. It is the church. It is us as believers inheriting the new earth. Think of the words of the Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We as believers will inherit the earth after Christ returns and fulfills this promise of possessing a land forever. It is the church ruled forever by King Jesus, 
That is the fulfillment of an eternal son of David reigning over an eternal kingdom. And it's the church's missionary work among the nations of the world, bringing people into subjection to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through the gospel. That is the conquering of the nations that was prophesied. And so the church is the reality of which Israel was only a type. This is why Paul says that anyone with faith, faith in Jesus Christ is a son of Abraham, a true Israelite. This is why Peter calls the church, that includes Gentiles, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We, under the lordship of Christ, are the Israel of God. And this means that the promises to Israel are our promises. The Old Testament promises to Abraham, and then Abraham, Isaac, uh, uh, to first to Abram, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. These promises were not just about ethnic, national Israel, only earthly in fulfillment. No, they pointed to Christ and to the people of God over which he would rule as king. And it should have been clear even to the Old Testament people of God that the promises weren't going to be restricted to an earthly fulfillment for the promises have always been of heavenly, eternal blessings. Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, confirms this spiritual understanding of the promises by telling us that even Abraham understood the promises of God to be spiritual and heavenly in their fulfillment. It says there in Hebrews 11 verses 9 and following by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and then skipping to verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they would from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So why this long introduction? Well, obviously, I believe that what I have said is crucial to properly understanding this psalm. What is critical is understanding that this psalm is about the church. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's not ultimately about Israel and about Jerusalem. I want to highlight three things that the psalm says about Zion, of which basically the same things can be said of the church, Christ's people. So our first point is, it is a glorious place. Second, a place of ethnic diversity. Third, a place of worship. You can just replace the word place with the word person. So first of all, it is, um, it is a, a glorious people, thinking of the church. It is a people of ethnic diversity. It is a people of worship. So we're going to talk about, first of all, a glorious place as we read these words regarding, at the time, physical Zion, Jerusalem. There in verses 1 through 3, the psalm opens with this description of Zion as this glorious place. The psalmist declares, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. The reference in the first verse to the holy mount, and then in verse 2, to the gates of Zion, make it clear which city the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about Jerusalem, known as Zion. 
Well, what do we know about Zion from a geographical point of view? Zion was basically a mountain on which part of the city of Jerusalem sat. Technically, there were two mountains separated by a valley. Mount Zion, on which David built his own house and rested the tabernacle and ark, and Mount Moriah, on which Solomon built the temple. And in time, Zion came to stand for both of the mountains, and even for the city of Jerusalem itself. And as Zion represented the special dwelling place of God with his people, and as the covenant itself is all about the relationship that God has with his people so that he dwells with us and even in us by his spirit, it's really then not a reach to recognize um, and see why in time the entire nation of Israel, the whole body of God's Old Testament people, would sometimes be referred to as Zion. And uh, this corresponds with how in the New Testament, you and I as individual believers and as members of the church are said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what the psalmist highlights are two things that can be said about Zion that make it glorious. Glorious things of you are spoken. What are two things by which it's glorious? Well, first, it's a glorious place because it is founded by God. Verse 1, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. Actually, in the Hebrew, the psalm begins with the words as a way of emphasis. It begins with the words, his foundation, which, which means what he, that is God, founded. It starts out, what he founded. And uh, with that in mind, we translate verse 1, what he founded is, the, is in the holy mountains. Actually, in the Hebrew, the word city is not in the text. And the only other place where this word founded occurs is in Zechariah 4.9 in reference to Zerubbabel laying the foundation of the temple. When we think of God founding something in the holy mountains, we think of the city of Jerusalem and especially the temple. It's called the holy mountains because these were mountains set apart by God for a special purpose related to him and his, his saving graces. It was God's idea that, that David would take the stronghold of the Jebusites there on Mount Zion and make a city there. And in the end, it was God's idea and his work to found Jerusalem as the city of David where he would reign and where the temple would be built. It, would, it was there on Mount Moriah that David's son Solomon built the temple by God's own appointment. It was a place founded by God. It was God's idea that Zion would be a special place. And second, Zion is a place loved by God. Number two, verse two, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And it's not difficult to understand why God loved Zion in a special way because of what took place there in the context of the tabernacle and later temple. The temple was where God was worshiped. What was particularly beautiful about Zion and in what drew the affection of God was how it was there that the gospel was preached through the sacrificial system. The animal sacrifices spoke of God's plan of redemption through his coming Messiah. It spoke of the need for atonement for sin and of what God in his grace would provide for the salvation of his people, namely his son, the Messiah. He would give his son to death in order to satisfy his own justice. And God loves Zion because God loves to be revealed as a God of love. It was there in the temple that the glory of his grace was manifested, and that is apparently something that God loves. 
It brings him glory. It brings him pleasure. That God loved Zion tells us that God finds joy in saving sinners. He loves Zion because he loves his people. He loves his covenant with them. And Zion is all about God's covenant love and faithfulness. The heart of this love is his love for his own son, who is willing to give his life unto death for his people, to love his people in order that sinners that God had determined to love might actually know his love in him forgiving their sins and dwelling with them in fellowship. And so no wonder glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. It's the place that brings to mind God choosing to dwell with his people. As sinners, we don't deserve God's presence But God has chosen in the way of atonement for our sins to draw near to us. And he showed his love too by protecting the people of God from many enemy attacks. Well, in the New Testament, Zion is the church. I direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 12. Depending upon your translation, you actually will find the word church there. Um, The word that's For church is definitely found in these verses, the assembly of God's people. Um, In the ESV, that's the word that shows up. So look for that word where you see the word assembly, that's the church. But Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of that is the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to, the, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Mount Zion represents the heavenly Jerusalem and the church. And these two are connected, for heaven is where we as believing members of the church will one day go to be with God. The reality of Zion is God dwelling in us now through his Holy Spirit, meeting with us in his spirit as we gather for worship, even as we are doing today, and one day being where our God is. Glorious things continue to be spoken of Zion, for what our God has done for us in Christ is glorious. Saving grace is glorious. Salvation is glorious. Heaven is glorious. What is glorious is God's grace, taking us as sinners who deserve to be punished, and instead having his son punished in our, in our place, in our stead, so that we can be forgiven and restored to fellowship with God. And the future that you have with Christ is glorious because there's no one and nothing can, that can stand in the way of God's determination to bring you to himself in heaven. And so it is that Newton wrote in his hymn, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. And talking about foes, that brings us to our Second point, and the psalmist in uh, verses 4 through 6 gives us a whole list of some of the most well-known and formidable enemies that that Zion faced. We have uh, Rahab, a name for Egypt. There's mention of Babylon, who we know actually took 
uh, Jerusalem uh, by siege several times, took her residence into captivity. There's Philistia, the ever-present thorn in their flesh to the west along the coast. There's Tyre to the north. Cush, another name for Ethiopia. There's reason to believe that these enemies here are representative. For one thing, we have basically the four points of the compass with the first four countries. Egypt to the south, Babylon to the east, Tyre to the north, Philistia to the west. And Ethiopia is probably thrown there into the mix as representative of an enemy nation from far away. So we have the people of God surrounded by enemies of all sides, even enemies uh, throughout the world from far away. And what is said here three times, notice three times and, and therefore must be the main point, something that we aren't supposed to miss, is that it is said of these people from these enemy nations, twice we read here, this one was born there, that is in Zion. And then a similar statement, basically the same statement, this one and that one were born in her, the her being Zion, Jerusalem. This means that these people from these enemy nations are considered to be citizens of Zion and therefore part of the covenant people of God, children of God. And this is confirmed when God is quoted as saying in verse 4 that there are people from these places who know him. And that word know has a variety of nuances. It can mean to acknowledge and to understand and to know about, but also to experience. And the knowing here is definitely more than just knowing about God. To actually belong to the covenant people of God and to be numbered with them doesn't take place by simply acknowledging Jerusalem's God to be one God among many others. Now, this kind of relationship with Zion requires that these people of all of these different ethnic backgrounds would actually know God in a saving relationship of faith, in a relationship where they are submitting to God as the only God, bowing to him, seeking his grace in the coming Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I would point out that this has never happened with the earthly Zion of Jerusalem. Now, there were a few straight Gentile people here and there received into the number of the people of God, but basically what this psalmist is describing here has not occurred in a literal earthly way, but this has taken place, is taking place, when we think of Zion spiritually as representing the church of the New Testament. With the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost, the message of the gospel went forth to people of various Gentile nations. And what we find throughout the New Testament is that the church, once Jesus Christ has come, is made up of people of every tribe and tongue and nation, so that the church is by God's own design a people of ethnic diversity. So in sum, that people are registered as being born in Zion. That makes no sense of earthly Jerusalem, but it does make sense spiritually as we think of the church. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says that this is a prophecy of people being born again. When a sinner is being born again by the Spirit of God, that person is transformed into a new person with a new identity. Those who are born again become children of God and thus brothers and sisters within the family of God. It's correct to say that those who are born again become spiritual Jews. Those who are born again become citizens of Zion. Paul says in Romans 2.29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. 
So this is how the prophecies of Israel defeating her Gentile enemies are fulfilled. Worldwide domination by God's people of the unbelieving world is not affected through politics, through military attacks, through biblical laws, and strong arming people into submission. But dominating the, uh, the world is the work of God's spirit, bringing people into the church through the gospel. Verse 5 says, It is the Most High himself who establishes Zion as a people of ethnic diversity. It is the Spirit of God through the gospel that makes people citizens of Zion. And what stood out about Zion because of the glorious things associated with her is that it was a place of worship. Um, verse 7 mentions singers and dancers. And we know that they are singing and they're dancing in praise to God. For what are they saying? They're saying to God, all my springs are in you. Now think of springs in that desert environment of earthly Zion, of earthly Jerusalem. Water was a necessity. Of course, it is for us too, but it felt much more a necessity in that environment. And of course, these springs were also pleasant places of great relief and refreshment. And in Psalm 46.4, there's mention of the stream that actually belonged to Zion. We read there of a, quote, river whose streams make glad the city of God. And I don't know if you realize this, but within the walls of Jerusalem, there was its own stream. This source of water was what, humanly speaking, enabled Jerusalem to withstand long sieges over many centuries of existence. The, these various enemies would come against Zion, and they would be those who would be gathering outside of Zion's walls, and they would struggle with a lack of water while inside the people of God had this spring that was bubbling out of the ground, forming a river right within their city walls, providing this unending flow of fresh water. And this water came to be associated with God's loving care of his people, not just physically, but spiritually. And that water certainly serves as a concrete picture of the fact that God is the one who provides all we need, even in the face of enemies and death. He is the fountain. He is the source of all good things. He is this overflowing fountain as he gives us good things generously and constantly. And I'm not referring primarily to the earthly blessings of food and drink and clothing and shelter. Yes, he provides those things and he sustains our physical lives. But these singers and their dancers, they're, they're talking about the springs, plural, that are in Zion because of God's presence supplying all that we need spiritually. These springs are the various things that God has given to his people, which are sources of spiritual life and refreshment. Think of God's word. Think of God's spirit who enables us to understand that word. Think of the temple for those people back then, that with all of the types pointing them to Christ. There's, of course, the resource of fellowship and communion with God's people as we interact with each other, providing instruction and comfort and rebukes and encouragement in the truths of God's word. And so in very concrete ways, we help one another in our walk with God. And what is rightly said about all of these springs is that they are in God. God is the one who supplies these springs and who blesses them to our use so that we are spiritually refreshed. Boyce puts it this way, he says, what all these references are saying is that every good and perfect gift is from above, that is from God. All we are or hope to be, all we have or ever hope to have, 
All we attain or ever hope to attain is from him. The people of God acknowledge this and praise God for it. Do you do that? Or do you take credit for what you are or accomplish yourself? End quote. Newton, in his hymn based on this psalm, saw all of these springs as sourced in God. He wrote, see the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. It is also said that Robert Robinson's hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, is also based on this psalm. It references springs, it references Mount Zion, it references the praises of of God's people for these things, and uh, reminds you of the words of that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, O fix me on it, mount of God's unchanging love. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the glories of your grace given to us as your church, the glories of Christ that you have revealed to us, that at one point were set forth in the types of the temple, but now have become a reality in the coming of Christ as he gave himself to the death of the cross and rose from the dead on on our behalf. What glorious things continue to be spoken as we think of your grace. And Father, we also thank you for the worldwide progress of the gospel, uniting the nations of the world in Christ, bringing them into your church. We also thank you, Father, for supplying our needs in Jesus Christ, continually giving us so many reasons to praise you as the source of all good gifts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.